Magnificent Catastrophe. It's actually the title of a book that I'm currently reading. It is subtitled, The Tumultuous Election of 1800, the first presidential campaign. It was John Adams. I don't have time to go into that, but I assure you there is nothing new under the sun concerning politics, concerning the nastiness, concerning the in-party fighting, and the subterfuge within the party to try and sack John Adams, their own nominee. Nothing new under the sun. (laughs) On the morning of April 19th, 1775, about 150 miles south of here, in the town of Lexington, on the common, on the square, on the green, stood 70, 70, 70, Brave farmers, businessmen, small businessmen, not meaning they themselves, but their businesses, going face to face with the most powerful military might in the world at the time. What was at issue was not rage against the government of Britain for extracting money from their pockets to pay for the killing of unwanted children. No. What was at issue was not that the government of England was particularly corrupt. It was not that they were putting their lives on the line because of incomprehensible edicts issued by King George demanding that that everybody recognize and embrace and accommodate people born into the world as boys and girls who somehow think of themselves as something else. No, it was none of those things. Those brave band of men stood their ground refusing to have their very straightforward, very simple, but God-given rights curtailed or diminished in any way. Taxation without representation, I don't know how that got so much traction, but that was only a fraction of the big picture. Compared to what we are facing today, they had nothing to complain about. When I read through the Declaration of Independence, I stand in awe with a boggled mind at such a strong declaration putting their lives on the line and the delineation of what their grievances were. If you haven't done that recently, do it and compare it now to today and what we could write. Yet, somehow in the providence of God, somehow, one sees there on the Lexington Common the future of America and America's God-given mandate to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples of all nations. Of those 70 brave souls at Lexington, the majority were members of the local church or local churches, but in particular, the majority of them, or at least many of them, were members of the local church pastored by Jonas Clark. The pastor, while not there on the green, was right nearby observing what was going to take place. There in the midst of those brave men was Captain John Parker. He was a member and he was a deacon at Pastor Clark's church. He was the leader of the militia. But that militia was not just thrown together because people had a grievance. They were there by the duly constituted authority of the Continental Congress. And I make a point of that because that was vitally important that they did their resistance properly. You see, they were taught in the churches 
They were taught, let me say that again, in the churches, that the only lawful way to resist tyranny was under duly authorized authority. Otherwise, they were mere rogues. They were just rebels. And God would only bless what was truly a defensive war. Hence, the famous command that is enshrined on a statue there at Lexington Common, stand your ground, but do not fire unless fired upon. New England pastors taught that true liberty was a result of covenanting with God under the rule of law, God's law. The Reverend James Caldwell was nicknamed the fighting chaplain. The pastor was nicknamed the fighting chaplain. And when fighting broke out, he turned his church building into a recruiting center. Pastors Clark and Caldwell were not the exceptions, mingling church and politics. They wouldn't even have used that phrase because there was no demarcation between anything in life. It was all of God's and under God's authority and purview. Those pastors were not the exception. They were, in fact, the rule. The clergy, in fact, were so prominent in the war effort, for our purposes, call it, they were so prominent in politics that Britain referred to them as the black-robed regiment. If you know what a regiment is, it is a military group of men for the purpose of fighting. It was not exceptional or extraordinary or forbidden that a church should talk about politics. God tells us in 2 Peter 1.3 that He has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Not just those things which are spiritual, or that we would consider churchy, or the world would consider religious. Everything pertaining to life and godliness, meaning there is nothing outside the purview of God's authority, which means there is nothing off-limits to the church of Jesus Christ. It has only been in recent times that the church-going populace bought into the satanic scheme to strip away the role and the imperative of the church in maintaining a peaceful society through its preaching the Word of God while holding the state accountable to its proper place in society. These past eight years have been among the most bizarre in my lifetime. And I know that, that especially in this bizarre election season, that there is a high level of anxiety and confusion on the part of God's people. I am trying to be and will continue to the end of this message to be careful when expressing my opinion versus God's infallible truth. Thus far, what I have been saying is fact, not my opinion. I have heard the easy and the generally helpful cliche a few times this season, well, vote your conscience which, at least in my mind, and maybe this isn't fair, but in my mind what that means is, vote your heart. But the prophet Jeremiah tells us that the heart is more deceitful and is desperately corrupt. Meaning, and come on, we know this. We are masters at lying to ourselves and convincing us that we are right when we are dead wrong. Either in a temporal sense or worse, in an ultimate sense. I don't want to vote my conscience. Because to me that means, again, what I think, what I feel strongly about. I want to vote my head. And so I am trying to make sure, though, that my head is properly, accurately, and biblically informed. And that is the point of this message this morning, is to help you with the same. 
I want to start out with Second Chronicles. Yes, the Old Testament, chapter 36. Let me give you some background for what is called the Babylonian captivity. Beginning in verse 14, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. We are talking about God's people, Israel, and God's priesthood. And they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised God's words, and they scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who slew their young men in the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin or old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand. To remind us, Hebrews chapter 12 Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Not as we, in our fleshliness and anger and impure anger and rage and vengeance and revenge and all that discipline, but God disciplines in pure love. The focus in 2 Chronicles is not... They, them, and those of the wayward nations. The focus, the light, is shining on God's people, which includes both the truly faithful, called the remnant, and the posers. While in captivity, as a giant spanking, Bizarre things happen to the chief ruler of the nation who has God's people in captivity by the name of King Nebuchadnezzar. My assessment of him is he is not, this will make more sense later on, Nebuchadnezzar was a pagan. He was not a a believer. He was not one of God's people. He was one of the rogue nations. But Nebuchadnezzar was not evil. He was a sinner. He was a fallen individual, not enlightened by the Spirit of God. He was just an unbeliever and a pragmatist. And in his pragmatism, he recognizes legitimate, genuine power and legitimate, extraordinary wisdom and expertise and sincerity. And he sees the benefit of all those qualities And, of course, this is emerging in his relationship now to some of the captives named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. Consequently, he is impressed by the power of the miraculous one whom Daniel and his colleagues worship. And Nebuchadnezzar is leader of the political structure of the era. And he, as we see, is nothing but a tool in the hands of the all-powerful one using this political personage as a messenger to the nations as well as to God's own people. Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. Wow. Nebuchadnezzar was enjoying the good life. The kingdom seemed to be under control, relative peace. Tranquility was basically the order of the day. And on top of all that, he was prosperous. Life was good until life wasn't good. And he has a dream which rattles him to his core. I saw a dream, chapter 4, verse 4, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. And what transpires from that point on is a phenomenon called boanthropy. It is an actual malady that the medical community understands and recognizes, rare though it is. 
It's described in verse 16 of Daniel 4 forward. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that... What is the purpose of this coming upon Nebuchadnezzar? It is so that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and He bestows it on whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. And that verse is repeated four times in the next 40 verses. So let me get down to brass tacks. God is in control, for sure, as we are fond of saying, but I'm, I'm going to make an assumption here. I am assuming that we are not fatalists. At least I hope we're not fatalists. You say, what is fatalism? Fatalism is where we believe that everything in life, I mean, God is sovereign, God does what He wants, God, all of that, His purpose can't be for all, we understand all that, but Fatalism says that everything is already fixed, everything is arranged, and there is nothing that, that we can do outside of God's purview, meaning we have no decision, no choice in a matter. We are basically reduced and limited to automatons. We only think that we are freedom, free to choose. But we are not robots programmed by God to carry out His plans with no liberty to do right or to do wrong. Without freedom of choice. And as such, what we do is important in the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. And yet, we do believe that God's plans and purposes will be accomplished regardless of our choices. You say, wait a minute, you just negated what you just stated. No, I didn't. God's plans and purposes will come to pass but they will come to pass with us or whoever he determines to do thus and such at this particular time or without us. We do have the freedom to cooperate or not, to say yes or no. That doesn't mean that God's plan then is going to get messed up. He's just going to use somebody else. And the person expected to do whatever God wanted will miss the blessing that there is in walking in obedience before him. And so living in America as of today, as of right now anyway, as far as I know, things change quickly, we still have the right and I believe the obligation to exercise the prerogatives of citizenship to direct our society in a direction that would be pleasing to God. What this means is that the church... And remember, there is no church. There is only the body of Christ. There are Christians that comprise what is called the church. That's an important point. Because we can too easily go, oh, yeah, well, the church should be doing that. And the church should be doing that. No, it, it, we, the Christians who make up the church, are the ones who need to do. We're the ones, whenever the church is mentioned, it is talking about. And we are to exercise the full might of God's truth in trying to bring truth to bear on a deaf and blind nation. So what does that mean? Well, let me start by saying what it doesn't mean. This does not mean that as Christians in politics are often accused, that the Christian politician wants to force everyone to faith in Christ, mandating national observance of the liturgical calendar, mandating attendance in church and a specific church on Sunday, and mandating withholding the tithe from everyone's paycheck, although if that's all the government did, that would be a bargain. (laughs) What it means is that the church, again, which means Christians, must continually, and I am quoting here now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor who was executed for his resistance to Adolf Hitler. The church must continually ask the state whether its action can be justified as legitimate action of the state. In other words, as action which leads to law and order and not to lawlessness and disorder. Profound words. 
In other words, it is the church's role to help the state be the state. If the state is not creating an atmosphere of law and order, as Scripture says it must, then it is the job of the church to draw the state's attention to this failing. A little while later, he adds this, The state which endangers the Christian proclamation negates itself. They say, well, okay, but that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. That's not inspired. It's not the word of God. Right, that's fair. So where does Bonhoeffer draw his argument by assertion from? Well, he takes it directly from what God has determined, the purposes and functions for which all legitimate governments are ordained. As expected, the word of God is clarifying concerning the relationship between the church and the state or the government. Romans chapter 13. And also please understand this. Romans chapter 13, it's only a few verses, is not the whole teaching on the matter. It's not the only relevant passage on the issue. In fact, the whole structure that God designed and implemented for His people from the very beginning, and I'm talking about Genesis on forward, it is codified and formalized more in the book of Exodus in chapter 20 when God gives the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, and it serves as the foundation of what will flow, in fact, throughout the Bible. Romans 13 merely encapsulates in a very succinct way for us the answer to this very important question. This is what it says, 13 verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinances of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, because of those two verses, I hear too frequently, not frequently, but still too frequently, the simplistic thought put forth time and again from Christians saying that God ordained government. Therefore, therefore, we are obligated to obey government even if or when it is bad government, and it makes me want to pull my hair out, which is getting more and more challenging as time goes on. And again, as we would hope, the Word of God, the inspired, infallible, and authoritative Word of God, begins with clarity to all things pertaining to life and godliness in these matters of church and state. Beginning verse 3, Romans 13. When and why are we supposed to be in subjection to the government? Let's look at this carefully. It's not rocket science. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Let me insert a couple words there just for clarification of what this means. Rulers, that is governing authorities, are not supposed to be a cause of fear, for good behavior, but for evil behavior. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Well, then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, government, is a minister of God to you for good. And that is good. Sorry, I won't go there yet. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, meaning what is just said means this. Because of that, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath and the authority the state has to exercise discipline against law scoffers, 
but also for conscience sake, meaning because God wants us to obey him ultimately. All of this means that the legitimate role of God-ordained government is to uphold godly rules and laws because it is these which bring about justice. It is these which bring about equity and peace and security. Just what God desires for all people. But when government is feared by those who are doing right... When government is feared, and rightly so, by those who are doing right according to God's definitions of right, not the world's, not the state's, not the government's definition of right, but by definition of what God declares to be right. When government is feared by those who are doing right, it is no longer an extension of God's authority. Another quote, and I'm sorry, I don't remember if it was Bonhoeffer or R.C. Sproul. When government compels us to do something that God has commanded us not to do, or when government compels us not to do something that God commands us to do, it, that is the government, forfeits its right to legitimate rule. When this happens, not only may we disobey, but we must disobey. And I will tell you, I have heard numerous Christians justify their passivity concerning the systematic, just one little example, concerning the systematic destruction of children called abortion, saying, well, but, you know, it's legal. The government says it's legal. The Supreme Court said it's legal. The slightly more thoughtful, and only slightly more thoughtful Christian may add, now, when they, meaning the government, mandate that I have to get rid of my child, as is required in China, then I will do something. And again, we are reminded that there is nothing new under the sun, including the mindset of, I'll do something when it affects me directly. Then I will do something. Again, this is an utterly self-centered view of one's place in God's universe. Example, when Adolf Hitler was coming to power, not when he was fully in power, but just kind of, you know, he's there, he's making his mark and everything else, and he's now the Fuhrer, he didn't just start throwing Jews into ovens. He chiseled away. He knocked and chiseled away their rights by turning them from being fully fledged, fully, fully protected citizens of Germany to becoming subjects of the state. That was why the Nuremberg Laws were passed. They were designed to change the status of the Jews from citizens of Germany to subjects of the state. And Bonhoeffer was hopeful at this point in time. He was pulling his hair out by the inactivity of what was called the confessing church in Germany. He thought for sure now the church would start speaking out with clarity. Because this was now a new, a whole new level of of wickedness and a whole new line in the sand from German leadership. Surely now God's people would have had enough and will take a stand. Unfortunately, the church was typically too analytical, Bonhoeffer's words. Too analytical in its relationship to church and state. And therefore, they were cautious. Our witness, our testimony. They were cautious to the point of uselessness because it didn't affect them. Again, Bonhoeffer. This is, by the way, from Eric Metaxas' outstanding biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
The idea of limiting the church's actions to this sphere alone was absurd, meaning, meaning just limiting the church finally doing something only when it directly involves and impedes the, the church itself, meaning the Christians within. The church has been instituted by God to exist for the whole world. It was to speak into the world and to be a voice in the world, so it had an obligation to speak out against things that did not affect it directly. R.C. Sproul follows in another book with, When the church, remember the church equals Christians, When the church protests against this injustice, it is not trying to intrude into the domain of the state. It is simply reminding the state that its primary function is to protect life. And any government that sanctions the destruction of life has failed in its divine mandate to govern. So you see, government was never intended to be blindly obeyed as if government is the voice of God for the people that it governs. Think about the actual body of Christ, meaning Jesus, when he was here on earth. The body of Christ on earth. Jesus incarnate. When he was here, he said something about Caesar. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Jesus went back to heaven and he now declares the church collected as the body of Christ on earth. And it is the role still of the body of Christ on earth to explain biblically what is Caesar's and what is God's, what is consistent with the heart and the mind of God and what is not. In the early days, this goes back to the mid-80s, of the peaceful but active, you'll see what I mean, the peaceful but effective and active protests over the slaughter of the innocents by barricading entrance to abortion clinics with our bodies, our physical bodies, overwhelming the law enforcement by the sheer numbers of physical bodies blocking access to abortion clinics so that at least at that time and that day, no babies would be killed because they wouldn't be able to get in. Barbara and I were involved in the inaugural advent, if you will, of Operation Rescue in the city of Chicago. On that day, there were 274 of us arrested, handcuffed, taken away, put into paddy wagons, taken down to the first lockup and transferred to the main lockup in downtown Chicago with all the hardened criminals, etc., etc. Why am I sharing this? Because it's not what happened on Saturday. That was a Saturday. We were released after going to court and personal, all this stuff, and bond and, and bail, whatever you call it. Um, released late at night, and Sunday morning, we were in church. Our Savior, Evangelical Free Church in Wheeling, Illinois. This was not something that happened, you know, in a dark closet or in a room. This was, like I said, the first, the very first movement of Operation Rescue in that city. And it was huge, and it was all over the news everywhere. Everybody knew about it. So it wasn't like our church wasn't aware and, and that they weren't aware of our involvement. And I was curious. What would be said on Sunday morning walking into church? <laughs> there was absolutely... Nothing by anyone said to me, I assume to Barb, nothing like it never happened. You guys were never there. It never, you never, it just nothing, not even friends, nobody that knew us, not so, hey, oh, you got out. Well, good to see. How do, absolutely nothing. And I said to myself then, I said, this does not bode well 
for the church in America. The issues surrounding this election are paramount, are paramount to the existence of America as the United States, if it isn't too late already. I know that may sound melodramatic, but that is reality, my opinion. And what follows now here again will be largely, if not entirely, my opinion. So dismiss it, reject it, throw it away, whatever. Email me, excoriate me, whatever you feel like you need to do, have at it. Okay? This is not thus saith the Lord. Am I being clear? Okay, good. The differences in the two candidates are the most profound in my recollection, which goes back 10 presidents over 50 years. Goes back to John F. Kennedy. At the policy, values, ideology level, America knows what Hillary Clinton is, not what she is rumored to be, not what she is accused of being, but what she herself has proven and what objective, unbiased evidence is proving beyond all doubts. Trump's policies, values, ideologies are pretty much an unknown quantity. Let me explain. All we have to go on is what he says, which may or may not prove to be true. Not like politician has ever lied before to get elected, right? Right. But we do know some of what he is. He's brash. He's arrogant. He is egotistical. He is smitten with his success. He is rude. He can be crude. He is a very rich man. He is a very driven man. And a man who seems to be respected by many of those around him of both genders and all kinds of race and ethnicity. And again, you're, you're sitting there, your mind's maybe going in quite many directions, and boy, I just want to raise my hand, and believe me, I fantasized about being able to give something like this, and afterwards just taking questions, because this is only a smidgen of what's up here. <laughs> I am not counting concerning Hillary or Trump the testimonies the stories, the rumors, etc. Now listen to this well. If Jesus were running, I usually don't like to preface anything like that or hear people do that. Yeah, but he's not. But you'll get the point. If Jesus were running, I am absolutely certain, and you'll see why, that he would be portrayed as the spawn of Satan. And I'm not being disrespectful here, because guess what? That's right out of the inspired, infallible, and erred authoritative word of God. He was accused of being a liar over and over. He was accused of wanting to take down the earthly rulers. He was accused of being arrogant, claiming to be God, and the most outlandish. He was accused of being demon-possessed and working for Satan himself, Matthew 12. Okay, so I mean, come on. Right? And that's kind of informing to the whole shtick. Mr. Trump may or may not have had some sort of conversion experience. If he has, great, I hope he has. But that is a process, so that all remains to be seen. What Trump is, remember this is all my opinion, he is a fallen, flawed, sinful man who is a bit of a buffoon. Miss Clinton is not simply a fallen, flawed, sinful woman. She is an evil person 
who truly has stopped past tense at nothing. Note, I did not say that she will not stop at anything. She already has not stopped at anything. Again, she has already revealed who she is and what she is capable of 30,000 times over. Get the reference? Yeah. And the rule of law and of America as we know it is not her future for you and me and America. No, 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 no. Mr. Trump, we know, not we think, not rumored, we know will take the law to its limits along with all the duly enacted lawful loopholes which are legal and available to everyone. But he has done nothing that I'm aware of, I'm aware of, which is illegal, much less at the level of wickedness demonstrated by Miss Clinton and those who surround her. There are four issues that take top place when we're considering God's design for government and this election. These, by the way, are still opinion, but they are well-grounded. Number one, unjust destruction of image bearers of God. That refers not just to abortion, but it refers to corrupt political systems that you know whack people and give them mock trials and end up you know killing them and all those sorts of things. But certainly, the unborn. It was a game changer in 1973, a horrid game changer for this nation. Number two, the dismantling of the natural witness of the gospel through the systematic destruction of the God-defined family. I'm referring to Ephesians 5, which talks about God's purposes for the family. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, subject yourselves to the husbands as the church does to Christ. And homosexuality and gender and role confusion completely upturns that and perverts it. Number three, freedom of religion. That is the church, freedom of the church to be and do what the church is mandated to do by God Almighty. And fourth, protection of its country's citizens. You see that borne out through the Old Testament. It's what the kings were responsible for. John Adams makes a great statement. Facts are stubborn things, he says. Whatever our wishes, however our inclinations or the dictums of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. With Miss Clinton, there are no limits on when or for what reason a child may be destroyed. We know that. And as we know, the commerce of selling baby parts is totally consistent with who this woman is. We know Miss Clinton will work to advance the mainstreaming of the LGBTQ goals for society. We just hit points number one and number two in the importance of what government is supposed to do, the antithesis. The constitutionally guaranteed freedom of the church to carry out its divine mandate will be gradually removed as it already has started. She has stated herself. I have heard it, not read it, heard it in various, a few different uh, venues. She has said that the Christian is going to have to change their view on abortion. Well, I got news for you, Miss Clinton. She does not speak of the constitutionally guaranteed freedom of religion. You say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. I heard, I read, I saw, I did. Hang on, hang on. But she uses her cleverly crafted freedom of worship. Well, that's the same thing. Oh, no, it's not. You ready for a wake-up call? 
the confessing church in Germany, and at least early on, the Jews had freedom of worship. They did not have freedom of religion. It is well known as well that Miss Clinton despises our military and has already sold, not rumored, proven emails by her own composition and undergirded by others' composition, sold or revealed national secrets to other nations. Mr. Trump says, says, he says, he will work to defund Planned Parenthood. Good. I've heard that before. But understand, too, that even if he's absolutely sincere, he doesn't have the power or authority. Only Barack Obama does. And I'm not saying that to be snarky or sarcastic. That man tramples the law, the Constitution, to put in things that he has no right, no power or authority to do legitimately. In a duly enacted law situation, Trump has no Authority. He can only lend his weight and his view and talk to the, the congressmen and everything else to try and get defunding. At the bottom, at the, at the end of the day, it is, comes down to a vote of Congress. And we know how absolutely corrupt the Democrat and Republican parties are today. I am uncertain as to where Trump falls on the whole LGBTQ agenda. Trump has stated that he will defend freedom of religion and will eliminate, even though it was never legally enacted, what is called the Johnson Amendment, which is the sword that's been hanging over churches, saying that if you talk about what I'm talking about today, you are in fear of us coming in and revoking your tax-exempt status. He says he will undo the Johnson Amendment. Mr. Trump seems by action and by pre-nomination anecdotes, meaning before he was ever running for president, there are anecdotes and there are stories that he is in fact very supportive of both the military and the nation of America. I could be wrong, I could be duped. It's just simply my opinion. Now, oh boy. We're, we're, we're close. We're close. If Miss Clinton is elected, will the church cease to exist and will the Great Commission be thwarted? No, it won't. As a matter of fact, I even hesitate to say this, the Great Commission may in fact be enhanced and fueled. It's just the way of history and how the church operates in times of persecution. <laughs> Take that for whatever it is. As for Mr. Trump, he just may may be a fulfillment of 1 Corinthians 1, 27. Not saying he is, I'm just saying it's possible. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. Could very well. But we have one last chance, I believe, to salvage the form of government created and intended of the people, by the people, and for the people. God was on the throne. Hear this last part. We're almost done. God was on the throne when Nero came to power. God was on the throne. Because don't we hear that? Well, you know, it's going to be okay. God's on the throne still. Yeah, I know he is. And he was on the throne through Nero and Hitler and Mao Zedong and Pol Pot and Stalin and baby Doc Duvalier and Idi Amin. And you can go on through all the, the heinous uh, mass murdering rulers that have been throughout history. God was still on the throne. And those people still came to power and did evil and wicked deeds. It didn't change the horror of their reigns. I'm concluding with this quote. And I'll tell you it's from at the end. We are as a city set upon a hill in the open view of all the earth. 
We profess ourselves to be a people in covenant with God, and therefore the Lord our God will cry shame upon us if we walk contrary to the covenant which we have promised to walk in. If we open the mouths of men against our profession by reason of the scandalousness of our lives, we of all men shall have the greater sin. That was Deacon Peter Bulkley, Puritan leader and founder of Concord Mass written in the early 1600s. Did I say there's nothing new under the sun? You've been very patient. I hope the people in children's ministries are patient. Let me have you stand. I could talk, and actually I'm going to ask Don Cole to come on up, and I'm going to ask Don to make our concluding prayer short for obvious reasons. I haven't even mentioned the Supreme Court of the United States and so many other things. We know the end of the story, but we don't know the minutiae of until we get to that end or even where that end is. And I, for one, would like to continue in a place of freedom and liberty. I am willing to put my body on the line for much less, as I have proven, as Barb has proven. But I would like to see this country in some way, shape, or form restored. And if the church does not take a reprieve as a blessing of God to do His bidding, should we be granted a reprieve, you can kiss it all goodbye. Okay, shut up, Pastor Bill. Thank you, Pastor. I'm going to predicate my prayer with a one-sentence remark. This is coming from a guy named Bishop Hall from Expositor's Commentary. If God were not angry with the people, he would not give up their governors to evils that provoke his vengeance. Justly are we charged to make prayers and supplications for all men, so especially for rulers. Let's pray. Father, we're feeling like we're between a rock and a hard place. Our culture on the whole, Lord, is, well, Lord, that we put forth for those to be elected in the highest office of the land that represent us. And we are, in a measure, Lord, ashamed. So, Father, we pray for your mercy and your grace as we move towards Tuesday and from there on. Lord, help us to be your church and to do what you've called the church to do and to remind the state to be the state as well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.